You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. That as well. Well, hey, welcome to, I'm losing track of what part this is in our series, but essentially we are in Exodus chapter 16 now. We have been going through the book of Exodus for a few weeks, and in this section of the story we're looking at, we're looking at the section where the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness, where the Israelites are wandering from Egypt, where they've just been freed, and they're moving to the promised land. But we're looking at how God led them, not the direct route, straight there, but how God led them through the wilderness and through this season of difficulty there. And last week, in chapter 15, we saw God introduce himself as Jehovah Rapha, as the God who heals. We saw that, that God is the God who, who satisfies our thirst and who turns the bitter water sweet, as we saw there. And where we ended last week in Exodus chapter 15 was God graciously turning the bitter water sweet so that the Israelites could drink it. And then he led them to this beautiful oasis of Elim where they had water, food, and everything they needed. And, and God was good to them, and he provided for their needs, and he promised to heal them. But now, as they are leaving that place, they have once again entered the inhospitable desert. Um, they have once again entered the wilderness. And God is once again testing their faith. And, spoiler alert, they're not doing very well. Um, the test that God gives them is difficult for them. And God is trying to undo this, these 400 years of bad attitudes that they've gained from being slaves in Egypt. And, and so it's this long process, and God is trying to teach them how to live rightly, how to be his people. And so that's essentially where we pick up the story today um, in Exodus chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles or a phone with internet connectivity, please find your way to Exodus chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way to verse 21 for the first little part. But Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. And what we're going to be looking at here in this passage is how the Israelites are again, they're going to get hungry, thirsty, they're going to be working to pass this test of faith that God has given them. And he's, they're going to start grumbling, and God is trying to teach his people that their focus is to be on him, and their focus is to be on faith, not just about food. So starting in verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into the desert to starve this assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And in this way I will test them and see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses said. 
you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and then in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it till morning, but it was full of maggots and it began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. And we'll stop there for now. Verse 21 there. So you see, God is using this season and he's using this hunger to teach the Israelites that he can be trusted. You see, the only way to heal the Israelites and to heal the trauma that they experienced from 400 years in Egypt is to get them to commit to a completely different pattern of living, to get them to commit to a different way of life, to commit to faithful obedience to Him. Now God tells them, I'm going to test you. I'm going to to say different things to you. I'm going to tell you to do different things. And I need you to listen. And I need you to obey. You have to trust me. And if I tell you to do something, it's for your own good. And he does this so kindly. Um, If you see in that chapter, in verse 4, when the people started grumbling and God says, I have heard your judgment, I will rain down. When I first read that, I just imagine like, oh no, what could he be raining down? Like hail, fire, judgment, something. But God kindly responds with, I will rain down bread. Bread, I will feed, I will provide. And one of the things God is teaching them is that when he feeds them, it's not just about the food, right? It's about their faith. They're about two months into the journey at this point, and they're already starting to grumbling that there's no meat. And they're already starting to be a little uncomfortable with their new way of life. And it's kind of a funny verse there in verse 3 that we read, where the Israelites start complaining and wishing that they had died in Egypt, right? They're like, ugh, back in Egypt, we just sat around pots of meat and we ate all we wanted. Which, I'm like, what? Like, we remember Egypt. We know what Egypt was like. It wasn't just sitting around pots of meat all the time. Um, And they didn't just eat whatever they wanted. First off, that isn't even true. We can look back and we can actually see what Egypt was like. Um, We know they were slaves, right? They were oppressed, they were beaten. And so this whole idea of, oh, we had it so good sitting around pots of meat is a lie. In fact, they were abused and beaten, forced to work for their food. And back when they were in Egypt, they were only given food if they had met their quota for work. If they didn't meet their quota, no food. So it's not like they just had free meat all the time, 
free food. This is someone essentially with a problem, right? This is the language of an addict, the, the speaking that they have here. This idea that, that the trauma they're going through is just so bad that it's completely distorted their view of their past. And they just want to get back to it no matter how traumatic it was. And this is something that God has to spend a long process of undoing in their hearts and minds. God has a lot of work to do to undo this, this trauma, this deep-seated addiction. And this is often the nature of our sinful patterns, right? Like we can come to faith in Christ in an instant, we can be saved and forgiven in an instant, but it will take God a lifetime, a process to get that out of us, to get this idea that, oh, it was, it was so good back when we could sin or do whatever we want, back when we were in bondage. And God has to take us through these seasons of difficulties, through these seasons in the wilderness, to get this out of us and to teach us this new pattern of life which he has called us to in order to heal us. And God says in response to them grumbling about that, he says in verse 4, in this way I will test you and test to see if you will follow my instructions. Because this is the way he's going to focus their hearts and minds on him and not just on their circumstances, not just on their food. So he gives them this test. And now, I don't know what you hear when you hear the word test, but there's often a lot of anxiety wrapped around tests, is there not? Especially for a lot of you who are in college. I know my wife is an elementary school teacher, and they are like not allowed to use the word test around elementary school age kids at all. You just do not use that word. That's like teaching 101. Because as soon as you say that word, it's just going to induce fear and anxiety. And the kids will do worse on the test just knowing it's a test. So it's not a test, it's an activity, right? Like she had a kid at her last school who just thinking there's a test coming up would just vomit out of anxiety. Couldn't handle it. Just throw up. And there's so much anxiety wrapped around tests. Now I know I saw some of you shaking your heads like you're not nervous around tests. And honestly, that was always me. Um, I could spend all week like going through school and a topic and I didn't feel like I knew it very well. And then you put a test in front of me and somehow, oh, I guess it wasn't there the whole time. Because I think I kind of need that pressure. Um, and I always did better if there was a test and pressure that I could pass it. But regardless of our idea of tests, this wasn't one of those tests. This wasn't like a pass-fail test like we are used to. God was testing them. And regardless of how many times they failed, he gave them a new test every day. He gave them another chance every day. There was new manna in the morning. They failed for 40 years, and every day he gave them another chance. This was a test to bring something out of them, not just to see if they pass and they fail. Gave them another chance every day until they got it right. And you see, this was this was a completely different way of, of gathering food and, and of having experience than what they experienced in Egypt. In Egypt, they literally had to meet this quota, had to pass the test, or else they were not given food. But here... God is teaching them to trust him. He's giving them a different way to gain their food. He's giving them a different way of getting their bread. And their condition for gathering bread was pretty simple, right? It was this. Only gather enough for today. And that was it. That was the condition. Gather enough for today. And God is saying, I will give you new bread tomorrow. But you just have to trust me that what I give you today is going to be enough. You need to trust me that I I will provide. You need to obey my word and trust and have faith in me and think about your faith and not just about the food. However, as we saw, some of them broke the rules, right? 
Of course they did. They tried to hoard it. They tried to keep it. I don't know if they stuffed it under their bed or under their pillow or what. But it got nasty and started breeding maggots. And so Moses was angry, right? Of course he's angry. That was like their one rule and they broke it. But you see this this hoarding. This hoarding was a show that they were taking their trust into their own hands more than they trusted God. It was a show that they think, well, you know, maybe God won't show up tomorrow. So just to be careful... Um, I'll just set a little aside. I'll just take matters into my own hands. I'll just have a little backup, a little savings account in order to just protect myself in case God doesn't show up, in case God's not faithful. But God was trying to build their trust, and this was a critical part of it, to release their grip on their control. And I don't know about you, but I often trust my own plans um, way more than I should, way more than maybe I trust the direction of God. And we often focus on the material things or on our own personal goals, even if we think God is calling us a different direction. But oftentimes it can lead into real trouble um, if we don't relinquish that control to God, if we don't pay more attention to God's word than to our own plans, than to our own rumbling stomachs and desires. Because receiving God's provision should be more about focusing on the provider than the provision. It's more on the relationship with God than on what he is giving us. Because really it's not about the food, it's about the faith, right? Now manna literally means, what is it? Right? The Israelites have the best naming techniques, right? (laughs) What is it? Brilliant. I love simple names, so that's good. But the point is that, that God made manna completely boring looking, completely different than any other food, because it wasn't about the food, Right? They had this long discussion about what is it, and they're talking amongst themselves. And I just imagine God saying, what is it? Why are you worried about what it is? I told you I'd give you food. Pick it up and eat it. Do you want to starve? Like They're starving in the desert, and they're having this debate about what it is. It doesn't matter. Eat it. It's good for you, right? Have faith in my words. Trust that this is from me. Just pick it up and eat it. Because it's not about the food, it's about your trust in me. Now another consistent theme we see in the Exodus story is really the contrast between God and between Pharaoh. And another reason that they weren't allowed to store up food is because of what they were actually building in Egypt. Does anyone know what they were tasked to build when they were in Egypt? It wasn't the pyramids, but it was the store cities of Pithom and Ramses. We see this in Exodus chapter 1, verse 11. That they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. They were tasked with building up food storage. That was their task as slaves. That's what they were forced to do for hundreds of years. And God said, that's how Egypt did things, but that is not how we are going to do things. That is how Pharaoh wanted to use you to gather food, but me as the good God, I don't plan on using you for that. That life in my kingdom is drastically different than life under slave masters in Egypt. And God was showing them freedom by preventing them from falling into these old habits. I'm sure they could have done a really good job of storing up this food, right? That's what they had done for hundreds of years. They were professionals. They were good at it. But if they had gone back to to working and storing up food, just imagine the trauma that brings up of hundreds of years 
of having a whip cracked on your back as you build the storage. Instead, God is planning to nurse them and to heal them and to teach them that he can be depended upon, to teach them that he can be trusted to provide and to focus on him. Now, 39 and a half years later, after this little event in Exodus 16, it's recorded in the book of Deuteronomy um, in chapter 8, verse 2, the day before the Israelites finally get to the end of their journey, when they finally get to cross into the promised land, Moses looks back and he reflects on their time in the wilderness. He reflects on 40 years of wandering and following God. And Moses gives, he gives an explanation of what God was doing here by giving them this manna. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 He says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So what was God doing in the wilderness? He was testing their faith, testing their hearts. He was changing them into the people that they needed to be in order to walk into the promised land, which is people of faith, people who trust in him. And for us, as we are in this journey of following God in our lives, as we are often led into the wildernesses, into the difficult, confusing detours, oftentimes these obstacles that come up are in order to rid our hearts of of something in order to change us into the people that God has called us to be, in order to make us more like Christ. So these wilderness periods, these strange tests, are critical times to be equipped and empowered by God. And are critical times to learn about faith in God as the provider. See, God said here, I'm making you hungry so that I can feed you, because when I feed you, I'm giving you an opportunity to trust me. I'll give you an opportunity to put your faith in me. And he's saying, you know, it was never about the manna. It was never about the bread. It was about me. It was about your faith in me. God was teaching them to obey his word. And this still, as we know all too well, this still applies to us today, right? That we cannot live off our own abilities, off our own strength. That we cannot focus on material possessions, or we cannot just think that that money will make us happy, or that the next best thing is what's going to satisfy. That we live off the word of God. That our life is sustained by following God's direction for our lives. And in our lives, God is teaching us to obey and to follow him. Now we know that when Jesus was led into the wilderness, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, right? See the connection there? to the 40 years. And when Jesus was tempted by Satan to turn rocks into bread, he quoted this Deuteronomy passage. And this is how he defeated Satan. He said, man does not live by bread off bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus understood this lesson. And then later, Jesus would then claim to be the bread of life, to be the everlasting manna. Are you familiar with that story, that Jesus claimed to be the bread of life? It comes from John chapter 6, where Jesus, he had just taught in front of a huge crowd, and they were way out in the country. And because people had rushed out into the country to hear Jesus teach, and they were a long ways away from the town, nobody brought any food. And so at the end of the day, they were hungry, and Jesus was going to have to feed them. And so he took a little kid's lunch and multiplied it to feed 5,000 people. You're familiar with that story. The thing is, 
everybody had a great time because of that. And they were all pumped and excited. They just had a great day of like Jesus camp where he fed them and taught them. And they camped that night and they were probably really excited for another morning where Jesus was going to feed them again, teach them again. It was going to be great. But then the next morning, before anyone woke up at the crack of dawn, Jesus gets into a boat with the disciples and just rows away. Just leaves them all there. So all these people I could just imagine are waking up just ready for another day and they're like, oh, I just love camping with Jesus. Jesus is just like, no, we're not camping. Like, see ya. (laughs) Bye. And left everyone there. And so they they get in their boats and they chase after him to the other side of the lake and when they get to him, they ask him, you know, like, how long have you been here? Like, what have we missed? I'm assuming they're probably asking, like, where's breakfast, you know? And Jesus rebukes them. In John chapter 6, verse 26 through 27, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. You see, it wasn't about the food. In this case, either it was about the faith. And just like the Israelites had to learn obedience to God and to focus on God and not just what he was giving them, Jesus was teaching a completely different people 1,400 years later this same thing. He was teaching them not just to focus on the benefits of faith or on on what God could give you, not just treating him like a vending machine where you just put your prayer in and you get what you want out. Not just seeking God's hands, but seeking God's face. And Jesus was teaching them to trust him. And it's amazing how 1,400 years later, Jesus was teaching kind of the same thing to people who are still struggling with it. And Jesus says later in this same chapter in John 6, verse 48 through 51, Jesus explains, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So Jesus is the manna. Jesus comes on the scene and says, everything you need is in me. Stop looking for other things to satisfy. Stop looking for provision in any other way, but look to me. Follow me and put your faith in me and the provision will come but you must put your faith in me. Jesus is telling these people, you know, let me remind you of this, this critical time in Israel's history, this, this time that the Jews remembered for years, this time that's, that's sung about in Psalm 78 where, where God provided manna, and Jesus calling back to the time and saying, that was all about me. I am the everlasting manna, and I should be your main desire. Jesus explained that it's that it's his face, that it's his relationship that was the purpose of that provision. Well, if you kept your Bibles open to Exodus, let's finish that chapter. You know that Jesus was the answer, that Jesus was that manna. But now how do we respond to that? We're going to see that in the second half of this chapter. So go back, we're in verse 22, we're going to read up to verse 30. So Exodus chapter 16, verse 22 through, through 30. And we see how God calls us to respond. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. 
He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. We'll stop there. You see, God gave them a practical way to grow in faith, a practical way to remember that it's about their faith, not about the food. And that's to take one day to stop, to rest, to focus on Him. He said, you know what? I know you really want to gather a lot, so on the sixth day, do it. Get as much as you want, and it'll be good the next day. But know that I have cared for you, and on that seventh day, you don't have to do anything. I have already provided everything you need. And I need you to have faith that I will provide for you on that seventh day when there isn't any. So that you can rest and know that it wasn't your own gathering, but it was my provision. Sabbath is introduced to them here. Just a few chapters later, it's going to become a command, but it was introduced to them here. And now the funny thing about the Sabbath, we know it's one of the Ten Commandments, but the funny thing about the Sabbath is it's probably the only Ten Commandment um, that we in America openly break, right? Or that Christians will openly break, and I think oftentimes even brag about, right? You don't typically hear people bragging about breaking the Ten Commandments. Like, no one usually brags about a lie they told or an affair they had, or they're not going to come tell you about this cool murder they just committed, you know? (laughs) But with this, or at least, hopefully they don't, and if they do, like, report that, but... The thing with the Sabbath is that just as the Israelites had gained... From years of slavery in Egypt, they had gained these, these bad ideas and these, these attitudes that were apart from God. We in America have, have some work to do as well. We have some attitudes and some heart postures that we have to work on as well. Especially in terms of the Sabbath. Because it's pretty rare to hear someone talk about breaking a Ten Commandments, but we admire Sabbath breaking almost as a virtue in this country. I mean, how often do we kind of speak proudly about how long it's been since we had a day off? You know, how many days in a row we've worked? And, and I'll admit, I feel pretty proud about that sometimes. I'm a hard-working guy. Back in college, I was working two jobs and I was in school full-time and I was pretty proud of the fact that, yeah, I'm really busy. Because in our culture, often busyness is a synonym for, for important. The more busy you are, the more value you have. And so we are really addicted to busyness and work. And we don't value this design that God has built into creation to take this seventh day off and to rest, to acknowledge that it's not our gathering, but it's God's provision. We're just always out there trying to gather bread and we don't know when to stop. And you see, all cultures around the world work off a seven-day week. This is the this is the design that God created into creation when he rested on the seventh day. 
And the last time someone seriously tried to change the seven-day work week was the French in the French Revolution in the 1700s. They tried to make it a 10-day work week in order to increase productivity. Guess what? It didn't increase productivity. First thing that happened was suicide rates skyrocketed. Mental illnesses started taking place in people, and productivity went down. And what social scientists have been able to figure out now is that human productivity really is capped at about 50 to 55 hours per week. Anything more than that is actually going to hurt productivity. So there's no difference between working 90 hours a week and working 50 hours a week, right? That's going to be the same amount of productivity, which equates to about a six-day week. So we in America, we're so addicted to it, right? We're so addicted to work. We actually work 137 more hours than the Japanese, who are known to be very hard workers. We work 260 more hours per year than the British, and we work almost 400, well actually no, almost 500 more hours per year than the French. You see, in America we work more hours each year than any other country in the world. 37% of Americans take fewer than a week's vacation each year, and only 14% take longer than two weeks. 20% 20% of people who are of Americans surveyed who take vacation admit that they are still working and completing projects even while on vacation. Because we just don't know when to stop gathering. We just don't know how to let God provide. Now the pandemic, as you might wonder, um, has changed things. But in fact, it's actually made things worse. According to a paper published just this last August by the National Bureau of Economic Research, They surveyed 3.1 million Americans who were forced to work from home because of the pandemic. They found that the average workday had increased by 48 and a half minutes for people who are working remotely from home. Other studies, like one done internally by J.P. Morgan Chase, who has about 200,000 employees, found that remote work is leading to almost three hours more work per day for their employees. And this gathering is only increasing. Now see, Pastor John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, he told a story of of this this common phrase he kept hearing in his church where, where people would defend the idea of Sabbath breaking. He said he would hear people say, you know, the devil never takes a day off and so neither should we. Which he said, okay, that does make sense and a lot of people are on board with it. Like, yeah, you know, the devil's working so we gotta get out there and work too. But then Comer points out the fact that doesn't the devil lose in the end? Right? And maybe the devil's not the person we should try to emulate, right? (laughs) Jesus kept the Sabbath. He didn't work seven days a week because he was afraid of what the devil might be up to. You see, in Egypt, the Israelites never got a day off. Slaves don't get vacation. They didn't get to keep the Sabbath. So the command to keep the Sabbath for them was a gift. This is great freedom to rest, to stop, to not worry about God forcing them to gather. This is a gift of freedom. And to us, the Sabbath is a gift as well. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann said this about the Sabbath being resistance to oppression. He said, he said, the Sabbath is resistance because it is a visible insistence that our lives are not defined by the production and consumption of commodity goods. He said, rest emancipates us from keeping up with the Joneses. Sabbath is a gift of freedom. 
Sabbath reminds us to focus on our faith over food, over material things. Now, of course, you know, theologians, they they point to the Sabbath as being the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments there. And it's actually the bridge between the first few commandments, which are all about our relationship with God, and and the last five, which are about our relationship with others. And they've pointed out that really the Sabbath is a hinge point from which we can turn from loving God to loving others. And it's from this place that we can love our neighbors. And it's interesting to see when we look at the Ten Commandments, it's, it's a big chunk of what's written there, right? If we were to break it out, there's much more written about the Sabbath than any other of the commandments. And it's the only practice, it's the only spiritual discipline that's included in the Ten Commandments, right? Like prayer wasn't even included in there. Reading scripture wasn't even included in there, but, but keeping the Sabbath was. And yet we devalue it so much. Now some people will, will argue today about whether or not we're still bound to keep the Ten Commandments, right? There's still an argument like, oh, well, you know, that was under the Old Covenant, and, you know, now we're freeing Christ. But as far as my perspective is, I'm pretty sure we're still called to keep the Ten Commandments. I, I haven't really seen anything in Scripture that in the New Testament that would say otherwise. It's not like we're called to just keep a spirit of peace. And, like, if you lie here or there, it's okay as long as you have good intentions. Or, like, you know, it's, it's really about your heart. If you're loving someone while you're murdering someone, then I guess it's okay. Like, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, I think they're still applicable, right? And so we have to value this. And Jesus in the Gospels, he valued abuse of the Sabbath and he valued the fact that the religious leaders had made Sabbath into something it wasn't supposed to be. They had put all these other rules and all these other connotations and they had made it about the food and not about the faith. And Jesus was working to undo this, working to help us to keep it to this. This is another sign that it's still applicable to us today. Now, John Mark Comer, in that same book I just cited, he said about arguing whether or not we should keep the Sabbath today, he said, arguing about whether or not we should keep the Sabbath is like arguing whether or not we should keep the law of gravity. It is a waste of breath, and we only ignore it at our own peril. His point is that there are a lot of things that we have the freedom to do. There's a lot. And it won't change our eternal destination but it can still hurt us today. And it's still wise to follow this this pattern of creation that God has created. It's still wise to follow God here. And so while we're while we're starving in the desert, it is pointless to argue and have a discussion of well, what is this? What's the point of it? Should we do it? Should we eat it? If you're starving in the desert, pick it up and eat it. It doesn't matter about the food, it matters about your faith, about your relationship with God. If God told us to do it, and if he told us it's for our own good, then we should pick it up and eat it, and then we should practice the Sabbath. So this week, as as we here on this journey of following God in the wilderness, as we are on this journey of, of learning how to let God provide for us, I think this is the way that we can remember that. I think this is the way we can practice and lean into the fact that, that God is a God who is in relationship with us, not just to give us things. And that's to take the Sabbath. To take one day off to worship, to focus on God, to rest, to read scripture, to fellowship, to whatever it might be. To keep the Sabbath and to remind ourselves of our faith. Not to worry so much 
about our food, our work, and all the other things that get in the way. So as we look at Exodus chapter 16 and we consider, you know, what's it all about? What is God teaching us here today? We know that God could have filled the Israelites' stomachs miraculously. He could have done a variety of things. He could have given them actual real food instead of this mystery bread on the ground. But what we see is that it wasn't about the food. It was about growing their faith. And Jesus confirmed this by using a little kid's lunch to feed 5,000 people and then reminding them that I am the bread. I am what you should be seeking. That only through him can we be satisfied. So today, as we learn to follow God, may we lean into this practice of Sabbath-keeping this week. Take one day to worry about our faith and not just about our food. So let's pray. Father God, you are Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. You are the one from whom everything we have was given. And God, we are so thankful for that. But God, we know that you are calling us to love you in spite of what we have. We know that you are calling us to to relinquish our control of our life and to, to trust in you, to seek your face, not just your hands. And so God, this week, would you empower us to do that? Would you remind us of your call to the Israelites then to to not gather on that last day, but to to rest, to think of you, to look at you and to remember that you are the God who provides and it's not from the work of our own hands. God, we acknowledge that, that we are in the desert. We are working too hard. We are taking stuff onto our own shoulders and not putting enough on yours. And God, we just ask that you would empower us to take your heavy yoke Empower us to see your provision and to thank you for it. God, to see your Sabbath as a gift. God, it is our desire to grow our faith and our trust in you. And we just thank you for your word. We thank you for what you did in the life of people thousands of years ago that we may still learn from it today. But God, would you bring transformation from this? Would you make us more like yourself? through your word that you've spoken to us today. So Jesus, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.